1: Hi, hello, how are you doing? This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby! And I'm Liv, your host and giant nerd, who is once again forced to research and write this episode on the day of Game of Thrones. Honestly, it's so much harder to keep focused and keep going when all I want to do is watch this show, especially after last week. Oh man, last week. Anyway, this is not about Game of Thrones, Liv. This is a great mythology podcast. So, we're back with... Odysseus and Circe. Last week I told you all about our beloved witch in a mini-myth devoted to her. As in that episode, I warned you of spoilers for Madeline Miller's book, Circe. This is equally true here because, well, Circe, the person, is best known for her encounters with Odysseus, and so the book, Circe, definitely includes everything I'm about to tell you in this episode, and future ones from the Odyssey too. So I recommend you read that book super quickly, or you just deal with the fact that you're going to be spoiled, but it'll be because you know the story of the Odyssey, which isn't really a spoiler because it's the Odyssey, and it's thousands of years old. Anyway, just an FYI for that. Well, where we last left our intrepid traveler, Odysseus, he'd just been informed by his man, Eurylochus, that a whole slew of his shipmates had encountered the witch Circe. They're on her island of Aeaea. And that she'd turn them all into pigs. So Odysseus sets out to confront Circe, and along the way he meets our friend, the trickster god Hermes, who gives him molly, quite cryptically, as a means of helping Odysseus in his upcoming meeting with Circe. This is episode 51, Hanging Out in the Halls of the Dread Queen Persephone, The Odyssey, part 5 sing muses of a man going to see a witch about his pig friends odysseus arrives at Circe's palace he's nervous heart pounding a rare thing for a man like odysseus but this is a rare encounter magic like hers isn't common even for those who've had their fair share of encounters with gods Circe is different and odysseus is alone he arrives at her palace and he sees her lovely he describes her as with her hair braided Odysseus calls to her inside the palace, and she welcomes him in. He's wary, but he follows her inside where she offers him a comfortable seat while she mixes our hero a drink. Now, I must remind you, this story is being told by Odysseus to the Phaeacians, so once more, he knows the end result. So, he tells them. She offers him a drink, a drink into which she'd poured her potions, trying to turn him into a pig, just like his friends. Odysseus drinks it but nothing happens. Still, Circe smacks Odysseus on the head with her magic wand, announcing that he should go out to the sty where he'll find his friends. But my main man, Odysseus, expected this. He pulls his sword on Circe and he leaps at her, the sword at her throat. Circe screams. She has her potions and her magic wand, but swords are something she has no experience with, and, well, I mean, that'd be scary for anyone. She screams and she cries out to Odysseus, asking him who he is and where he's from. How has he managed to drink her potion and withstand its effects? Circe looks at Odysseus. She looks him in the eye and she realizes. She says, you must be Odysseus. Odysseus who can withstand anything. She tells Odysseus that Hermes had predicted she would meet him, that he would travel to her island from Troy. With a wink, maybe, probably not, she tells him, Put that sword away and come to bed with me. Once we've done that, we may trust each other. An odd way of gaining trust with the stranger, but to each their own. Circe, Odysseus responds, how can you ask for my mercy when you've just turned all my men into pigs? He has a point. He continues, I know you're planning to trick me once we're naked. You're planning to take away my little Odysseus. No, he says, no, I won't have sex with you unless you swear an oath that you won't plan to hurt me further again, I like to imagine he winks. Cersei makes the oath instantly, which leads me to believe she really just wanted some quality hero dick. Was she planning to trick him? Hard to say. She changed her mind quick enough. But then, he is Odysseus. So, together they go to the, quote, dazzling bed of Circe, And they fuck. While Odysseus and Circe are having their dazzling hero goddess sex, there's work being done in Circe's palace. She has a number of slaves, house girls, they call them, which is kind of gross. These are nymphs of fountains and groves and rivers. They're there to serve the goddess Circe. They make things more comfortable, setting out food and wine and everything Odysseus could need. And then, once Odysseus is free of his duties with Circe, they run him a bath and wash all his weariness away. The nymphs bring Odysseus to the feast they've laid out. They've given him all he could want. He and Circe sit down to the dinner, but Odysseus can't bring himself to eat. He tells Circe, how could he feast on all this food when he knows that his men are so close but trapped in a sty as pigs? Circe seems to wish only happiness on Odysseus now. He's turned her around so she doesn't even try to fight him on the releasing of his men. She brings the men inside, and just like that, one by one, gives them another potion that transforms them back into men that they were. But not only that, now they look younger, more handsome, and even taller. That's right, these pig men are now even hotter than before. The men see Odysseus, and they run to him. They all have nice hugs, and really, it's just a lovely time. And Circe is down to play hostess, too, so with these men transformed back and everyone happy, she tells Odysseus to get all his things from the ship and come back to her palace with his other men. Circe will host, and they will stay with her and have a far more enjoyable time than they would camping out on the beach. The men are thrilled, and Odysseus, too. He travels back to the ships to get their things and his remaining men, all of whom are thrilled with the idea. Except Eurylochus. What, are you fucking kidding me? He says, though I'm paraphrasing a hint. Why would we go into her palace where we'd just be turned into pigs or lions or wolves? Don't you remember what happened when Odysseus led us into the Cyclops Polyphemus' cave? How did that turn out? No, it hasn't gone well when we've trusted the rash decisions of Odysseus. At this, Odysseus seriously considers just hacking Rilicus' head off, even though, we're told, their family... So, you know, definitely disproving the accusation of rashness with that response. Mm-hmm. But his men hold him back, and he doesn't get to hack off Eurylochus' head. They intend to simply leave Eurylochus there. He can watch the ships, they say. But in the end, Eurylochus too goes with the men back to Circe's palace. He's less afraid of Circe than he is the anger of Odysseus. <laughs> So Odysseus and the rest of his crew, including Eurylochus, travel to Circe's palace and join her and the recently depigged men who have been feasting in Circe's great hall. The men are, unsurprisingly, thrilled to see their pig fellows who are no longer pigs, but wearing nice clothes provided by Circe, and recently bathed, also provided by Circe. She's done a complete 180 in Odysseus and these men that have landed on her island, offering them whatever they could want and telling Odysseus to turn their spirits around. There's no reason for them still to be crying about how they were pigs. Look at them, they're no longer pigs! Anyway, it's as if they're supposed to promptly forget that, again, she turns them into pigs. Circe tells Odysseus to boost their spirits. They should try to regain the drive they had when they first set out for Ithaca so long ago. "'You've been through so much,' she comments to Odysseus, "'and you're so worn down and always broken-hearted. "'Cheer up,' she's basically saying, "'though without providing a good reason to warrant said cheering up. "'They're still not home in Ithaca, "'and again she just turned them into pigs.'" But all the same, Odysseus and his men do indeed cheer up. They boost their spirits and get back the drive they had when they first set out for Ithaca. And they stay like that, feasting and living in Circe's palace, for a year. After a year, Odysseus's men are ready to, finally, travel home to Ithaca, or at least keep trying. They come to Odysseus and they tell him as much, and he agrees. They've been there long enough, it's time to go. So that night, when the men go to their beds throughout the palace, and Odysseus goes up to his bed with Circe, as he has happily been doing all that year, he asks her to fulfill the vow she swore so long ago to send him home after all this time. He tells her that he longs for his home, and so do his men. They've enjoyed Aiaia, but they've had enough. Circe understands it's been a while, so she tells him, "'You're more than welcome to go home. I'm not keeping you here against your will.' But, she says, while I have no problem with you going home, there is something you'll need to do before you'll be able to get there. You, brave and cunning Odysseus, must travel to the underworld, to the kingdom of Hades and the dreadful queen Persephone. Yeah, she's the dreadful queen. Persephone was far more feared than Hades, and honestly, it's badass. You must travel to the underworld to seek advice from the blind prophet from Thebes, Tiresias. Tiresias, alone, has been gifted by Persephone with full understanding. At this, Odysseus breaks down. He sobs and cries and rolls around on the bed. I mean, honestly, I'm getting the toddler throwing a tantrum vibe, but maybe it's in a heroic way. Finally, he composes himself. He asks Circe, hopefully not in the whiny tone I'm imagining, "'How, Circe, can we visit Tiresias? No one has ever sailed to the underworld by ship.'" So, Circe tells Odysseus how to travel to the underworld. Set your sails. Don't worry about not having a pilot on your ship. Let the north wind blow you to where you must go. When you've crossed the stream of Oceanus, she continues, you'll reach a shore where willows drop their fruit, where poplars grow. This is the forest of Persephone. Tie up your ship there and travel into the home of Hades and Persephone. Go to where two rivers... The Pyriflegethon and Cocytus run into Asheron. There, dig a hole and pour libations around it, libations for the dead. Circe continues her instructions. There are to be animals sacrificed when Odysseus returns home to Ithaca and animals sacrificed when he is still in the underworld. He must pray and make vows and prayers to mighty Hades and terrible Persephone. Then she tells Odysseus, Draw your sword and sit. Do not let anyone come near the blood that's been spilt, not until you hear the prophet Tiresias. Finally, Tiresias will come. He will tell you about your journey across the seas. He will tell you how to get home to Ithaca.
0: When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan...
1: They said my head should be cut off
0: the joy they brought to the nation
2: you're free completely no one is there to destroy you i'm
0: john legend listen to afghan star on the iheart radio app apple podcast or
2: wherever you get your podcasts
1: With these instructions from Circe on how to reach the underworld and how to get the advice needed while he's there, Odysseus is ready, though he's still worried about how the plan will go. He goes around, waking all his men, telling them it's finally time to leave Ithaca. There's one man who was away from the others. He was high up in the palace on the top floor, seeking the cool, fresh air. He was drunk. Elpenor. He heard the bustle in the palace and it startled him he forgot where he was and elpenor falls to his death while all the others are preparing to finally try once more to get home to ithaca but they don't find out about elpenor not yet odysseus goes to his men and he tells them the plan they are not surprisingly quite distraught that they're not to head right out to Ithaca that moment, that instead they had to find a way into the underworld, what no other ship has done before? To ask the advice of a blind, dead prophet? I mean, it is a bit much, but we trust Cersei. She's proved to be pretty chill after she undid the whole pig transformation thing. With the ships ready to set out, Cersei brings them, at last, the animals they would need to sacrifice once they reach the world of Hades and Persephone. She ties the animals on board the ship, and in a blink, she's gone. The men proceed as Circe told them, letting the wind bring their ship to where they're meant to go. Darkness falls, and they finally reach the edge of Oceanus. This, Odysseus says, is the land of the Chimerians, land the sun never touches. It's a fascinating idea because the Chimerians were a real people in the general region of north of the Caucasus. Of course, for these ancient people, I'm sure they did actually get some sun, but it's interesting that Odysseus and by extension Homer believed they didn't. Also, upon googling them, because I had no idea who they were, I learned that the fictional Conan the Barbarian is meant to be a Chimerian. So, you know, that's kind of cool. Anyway, Odysseus and his men reach the edge of Oceanus, the land of the Cimmerians, and there they land and continue on, finally finding the two rivers, that I won't try to pronounce again, that feed into Asheron. Odysseus has Eurylochus and Paramedes make the sacrifices, and he begins to dig the hole where they'll pour the various libations. Libations which are laid out in immense detail, but which I won't bother you with now because it doesn't matter. Anyway, liquids and shit, they pour around the hole as a means of prayer to Hades and the dread goddess Persephone. I will continue calling her that because of how much I love it. Odysseus does all this. He makes the promises and the prayers and slaughters the animals as he's supposed to. And he waits. He waits. Spirits begin to appear out of Erebus, gathering around Odysseus and his men. Teenagers, the elderly, men, women, children, all the dead appear. Women who died in childbirth, men who died in battle. The dead crowd around, crying out. Odysseus gets a little overwhelmed at this. He calls to his men to continue on with the actions to appease the gods. To pray to Hades and to Persephone. Odysseus draws his sword, standing guard so that none of the dead may reach the blood before Tiresias has appeared. But before Tiresias shows himself, there are other spirits in the world of the dead that wish to speak with Odysseus. The dead are visiting Odysseus as he waits for Tiresias. First, Elpinor, the young soldier who fell from Circe's roof only days ago. Elpinor tells Odysseus what happened. Seems they just hadn't realized Elpinor's fate at the time. He begs Odysseus to bury him when he passes by Aiaia on his way home. Bury him so they isn't bound to wandering aimlessly for eternity. Next, Odysseus' own mother, Anticlea, visits her son as he waits in the world of the dead. But when Odysseus left Ithaca all those years ago, his mother had been alive, so this is how he learns she's died. Bit of a bummer. But Odysseus's mother doesn't speak with him. He sees her, he tries to speak with her, and she just floats away. Before he can grieve too long, though, Tiresias finally arrives to speak with Odysseus. Finally, Odysseus can relax a bit. Plus, Tiresias wants to drink the blood that he's been protecting. Gross. But anyway, Tiresias does that, and then he's ready to speak with Odysseus. Tiresias tells Odysseus that, while our cunning hero believes traveling home will be a sweet relief, the gods won't allow it to be. Poseidon, he tells him, will not cease his anger for what you did to his son, Polyphemus. You must suffer, but you will get home eventually if you control yourself and your men. Sail to the island of Thranachia, where you'll find cows and fat sheep. These belong to a god, to Helios himself. Helios, who hears and sees all things. If you leave these animals alone, you'll get home, though you'll have losses. But if you hurt them, all bets are off. Tiresias tells Odysseus that if the animals are hurt, he'll see disaster. If you alone escape, he says, you'll arrive home very late and very tired and in a stranger's boat. Not only that, Tiresias says... But when you arrive home, you'll find invaders, suitors courting your wife and eating your home of all its supplies. You'll kill them all, he says. Tiresias finishes with an additional prophecy about after Odysseus has killed the suitors, further acts he must complete in his life. But they're confusing enough in the book itself and trying to explain it to you would be something else. So all to say, there's much ahead for Odysseus should any of Helios' animals be hurt. Odysseus accepts this advice from Tiresias, but he has something more to ask him. He tells the prophet that he saw the spirit of his mother, but she didn't know him. Tiresias explains that it's the blood. When the spirits are close to it, or when they drink the blood, then they'll be able to speak the truth. With that, Tiresias leaves Odysseus, who waits for his mother to return. The spirit of Odysseus's mother, Anticlea, returns, and Odysseus allows her to drink the blood. Finally, they can speak. Odysseus tells her why he's there, how he got there, how long he's traveled. He asks about home, Ithaca. Has Penelope married again? How did you die? He asks. Has Penelope married again? How is Telemachus and my father Laertes? Odysseus asks his mother all she knows about all the things that have happened in Ithaca. She replies, telling him about Penelope's actions toward the suitors, how she's stayed firm, though she's always sad for her missing husband. Anticlea tells him about Telemachus, how he's busy withstanding the suitors but is otherwise safe. And about Laertes, who stays in the countryside and won't return to the palace at all. Instead, he lives like a peasant, sleeping alongside slaves, living in rags, missing his son. She tells him that missing his son and old age are not doing Laertes any favours, and that that is how she died, from old age and from missing her son, Odysseus. Once Anticlea has left him, he and the men are approached by a group of women sent by Persephone. One by one, the women drink from the blood and tell Odysseus their stories. Tyro, daughter of Salmonius, tells her story about how she was raped by Poseidon, how they were hidden by an enormous wave tall as a mountain so no one could see it happen then Antiope, who was taken by Zeus, next Alcmene, mother of Heracles, she too was taken by Zeus, and Megara, wife of Heracles, Jocasta, mother and wife of Oedipus, so many more women with tragic stories come to see Odysseus, to tell him what happened to them and what they did, the good and the bad. Chloris, Leda, Iphimedia, Phaedra, Procris, Ariadne, Meira, Clymene, Eryphili, Odysseus cannot count the number of famous women who speak with him, there, in the underworld. These are women who were wronged by men and those that wronged men in return. Countless women, from the most famous myths to the most unknown, speak with Odysseus, all sent by Persephone to tell their stories. Whether these women are included in the story to teach the listener something, I don't know, but it's something entirely different to tell so many stories from so many women of mythology. Odysseus meets them all, and we're told much about them, who they were, and what happened to them, what they did. The Odyssey generally is such a stark contrast to the Iliad in terms of the volume of women featured, let alone that so many of them are actually discussed as if they're their own characters. This moment is something else. But this is stopped short when we're thrown back into the reality that Odysseus is telling the Phaeacians about his trip to the Underworld. We're not living it with him in the moment. The Phaeacians are entranced as they listen to Odysseus, but he interrupts himself. He tells them that he can't name every famous wife and daughter that he met in the underworld he would never finish. No, he tells them he needs sleep so that he may finally be helped on his journey. And with this interruption of his own story, Odysseus gives us a convenient stopping place for this episode. Oh, friends, thank you all for listening. I did want to address one thing here. So I've had a couple people call me out for not calling instances like this, the sex between Odysseus and Circe, rape. It's hard to say whether these few people are coming at this from an objective point of view or the you hate men point of view that I get quite often. But regardless, I'm going to talk about it. There are instances where I've identified male victims of rape, or at least I did when I readdressed the Zeus and Ganymede story, and I fully intend to when instances like this come up. The problem is, when it comes to Odysseus and characters like him, it's really hard to classify these instances as rape or non-consensual generally. This in itself is a product of the time and of the way men and women were treated. Odysseus has agency in a way that no female victims in mythology do, which makes it more difficult to determine whether anything was explicitly non-consensual. Sure, by the end of his time with Calypso, Odysseus did want to leave, but we're told that he really did enjoy it for the first few years, and then he got bored, so does that indicate rape? Possibly, but again, with the way Odysseus is described, it's really difficult to say. The same applies for Circe. Did he not want it? Or was he just told that he had to have sex with her to save his men and think, awesome, I get to have sex with a goddess? With the women I talk about, it's typically Zeus physically kidnapping them against their will and taking them. Or Apollo chasing after them with such a vigor that they want to get away from him so bad they transform into a tree. These are much more obvious instances of problematic behavior. But is that because they were rape and the instances with men weren't? Or is it because men were always expected to want sex, whereas women were property to be taken? All to say, I'm not trying to leave out male victims or lessen that trauma at all, because it's a very real thing and equally serious. But in the mythology It's difficult to unwrap it from the patriarchy and therefore difficult to determine instances of men being raped because it simply wouldn't have been described or thought of as anything but good for them because they got to fuck a goddess. I don't have a good way of wrapping this up or of determining anything going forward, but I just want to explain the situation a bit. It's not the myth and it's not me. It's the whole history behind it. It's the way that men were expected to be which is a problem in itself but also just makes it hard to unwrap those things from the mythology on a completely separate and wildly different note i'm announcing the promised instagram contest make sure you're following me on instagram so go to instagram search myths baby and be on the lookout for a post i will post about the contest and you will need to like that post and comment with your favorite god or goddess and why I'll pick my favorite, and they will win a Myths Baby tote bag. Either my podcast logo or the new Goddesses of the Judgment of Paris. So, stay tuned. That's coming in the next few days. Thank you all, you're magnificent. I'm Liv, and I love this shit.
0: When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan...